0: The Financial Planning South Africa podcast is intended for professional financial advisors. All discussion is limited to publicly available information and should not be interpreted as legal, professional or financial advice. Hi, I'm Louis van der Merwe, Certified Financial Planner. Join me every week where I get to have discussions with global leaders in the financial planning space to help you serve your clients better and run a more efficient financial planning practice. This is Financial Planners South Africa podcast. Portfolio Metrics is thrilled to bring you this podcast in support of our common passion for people and the evolution of wealth management. Our global business links precision investment management to expert financial advice through partnerships and technology. Portfolio Metrics is an authorized financial services provider. ComSpace is a revenue management solution developed specifically for independent financial advisors. It is a web based application that tracks, allocates, and manages advisor revenue. The system seamlessly reads commission statements from financial institutions and can address any permutation of commission splits. ComSpace provides mind blowing out the box revenue business intelligence and analytics, along with super flexible reporting to effectively manage and grow your business. Welcome to another episode of Financial Planners South Africa. I'm very excited to have with me today in the studio, Dr. Alex Malcomian. Dr. Alex, thank you so much for joining me. It's been in the making for, for actually quite a few months. Uh, it started off with us connecting on LinkedIn, you finally publishing your book and me getting to, to read it and the wealth of knowledge that you shared around the work that you're doing in financial psychology. And... The promotion of financial planners and, and the great work that we get to do every day. Thank you so much for being here.
1: Absolute pleasure to be here. Thank you so much, and I'm so glad we made it happen. Uh, today is a great day for it for a chat about money.
0: Absolutely, I think every day could be a could be a great day. <laughs> Alex, you you have a unique story about ending up in America, and it's something that you've shared quite a bit, but. If you don't mind, can we maybe start with that kind of origin story? How did you get to where you are today? (laughs) Um, Well, my origin
1: story, uh, it all started way back when, many years ago in the Soviet Union. I was born and raised in Moscow. And I used to be much more open and talking about that, obviously, the political component to what's happening right now between Russia and the rest of the world, uh, I'm a little bit <laughs> more shy in disclosing that. But, you know, this is my story. This is my money story. And we kind of probably will get into that a little later, that component. And so growing up in, in a communist country, um, sort of at the tail end of the communist regime, um, you know, informed a lot of what I did or didn't do uh, with money, my beliefs about money. And, uh, I immigrated to United States, Moscow to LA. It sounds very glamorous, but it really wasn't. You know, I didn't really have a really deep connection with money. It was just something that was. And, and again, in, in a communist country, it never was at the forefront of any conversations, right? And, uh, the second piece that's really important to bring up here is that, you know, when I, when I immigrated, I actually did not speak English. I only knew a few words. Probably three of them are not, (laughs) are not really podcast, podcast (laughs) worthy. Um, and the other, uh, few, I, I, I did learn French in school. So there were a translation from French to English. And, uh, yeah, it was quite a journey to, assimilate and uh you know become a part of and really learn the cultural narratives, the cultural norms uh of living in a completely opposite or extremely opposite culture such as the United States. And so I'm pretty passionate about financial literacy because I feel like it's a something that I can really, really relate to. Uh, as someone who did not speak a language and, uh, you know, one story that I oftentimes share is, um, you know, I think I was in, you know, junior high or high school and, um, still really was uh, not fluent at all. And, um, I was after school sort of wandering around and kind of got lost, lost in time, uh, spaced out. And the next thing I know, I have to get home and I realized that I, don't know how to ask what time it is i don't know how to ask how, you know what bus route a r- route to take i don't know how much uh, how to ask how much the bus fare would be and so this pivotal moment of not being able to connect not being able to understand feeling completely um, isolated and also ashamed right the the shame component that there's something wrong with me that that really uh, left a major imprint and a mark on sort of my own psyche and how I, I dealt with the world. And so <clears throat> a lot of times at uh, my company, my uh, financial psychology center, you know, this is a lens through which we view uh, and help clients sort of organize their, um, their behavior with money. You know, a lot of times what I hear from clients and, and my staff bring the same narrative is that our clients feel like they don't speak the language of money. Like somehow either they didn't learn in the school, which is partially true. There's not a lot of financial literacy happening, at least in the States. And secondly, um, it's oftentimes that they feel like they're not naturally good with money, right? So they feel isolated. It's those same feelings, isolation, shame, maybe even guilt in some way, right? And it, it really kind of boils over into feeling dread in dealing with money, feeling despair, Oh, if I don't make this happen now, this is my <laughs> this is my uh big move. If I don't make this, you know, a hundred percent successful, then I'm doomed. And so it comes with this all or nothing sort of thinking. But what we start talking about is, you know, becoming literate. And becoming literate really um delves into learning the alphabet first. Then Putting the those letters together into words, then sentences, sentences and paragraphs, and eventually you become financially literate, and you do get to learn the to speak the language of money. And I think for somebody who's not necessarily again uh, feels like they are naturally good with money, it's a nar- narrative and a context that they can relate to, and it takes it helps it takes the judgment out of sort of the the only dealing with money in a practical sense in a more rigid mathematical equation only kind of sense so that's probably where i where i would kind of slow down here and see uh what feedback you have
0: alex that's that's such a wonderful story and how you specifically how you mentioned you know people feel like they're not speaking the language of money i'm just curious kind of what type of questions would you ask for them to get to that understanding? Like, where do you start these conversations? Because I would imagine someone doesn't just say, hey, I, uh, I'm not comfortable dealing with money. Like, how do, you, how do you start unraveling that?
1: Great question. So I think a great starting point, and I mentioned this, this term, uh, is a money story. And I think the money story is such a fluid and non-judgmental way of talking about your personal experience with money. That, um, a lot of times that's the starting point for our clients is can you write, uh, down or even tell me in session, uh, in a meeting, how did you, what was your experience with money? I mean, tell me about your memories, earliest memories. And a lot of times we start conversationally talking about, well, you know, my dad was, you know, working a lot so much so that, you know, he prioritized being a provider, but I felt like money actually uh, took my dad away from me, something like that. And you know, we've heard that you know quite a bit. Um, you know, a lot of times it's you know either do as I as my parents did because they were pretty good with money, or do the opposite because they were <laughs> they made such a horrible example of uh, how they dealt with money. So you know, many clients come into the to sessions saying, "I." My, my, my mom or my dad, uh, the way they dealt with money was completely atrocious. Um, and I just do not want to make the same mistakes that they did. So I'm here to learn. I'm here to understand, you know, what is it that, you know, I'm, re- what, what patterns am I repeating in my own life that I may have picked up from them? And sort of kind of going back to a bit of a, um, The my my uh, story of origin, um, my background is in clinical psychology and, um, you know, I kind of got the the fire (laughs) and the passion to work in the financial field um, at the tail end of the last uh, great recession in 2008, nine, when my clients were talking about the financial stress that they were feeling. Um, and when I started to sort of ask my fellow clinicians and therapists about, Hey, are you really, you know, hearing the same things? Um, and what tools are you using to, to help our, our clients deal with financial stress and, uh, you know, depression that's, that's ensuing at the, you know, and, and, and the mental health impact that money has on our daily lives. Um, and, and unfortunately, yes. The other therapists did <laughs> uh, mention that their clients were also experiencing these, but there were no tools to deal, uh, no clinically, um, no, no clinical tools or evidence-based practices that were developed at that point that would be, you know, helpful in dealing with uh, financial stress and, and all the other um, issues and symptoms that I discussed. So... That kind of uh, perpetuated me uh, getting in, getting inspired and sort of building it from scratch. And I'm not trying to say that I'm the first one or the only one. There are many people who came before me. Um, but we're a small group and we're very passionate about financial wellness, financial um, literacy, and financial psychology.
0: What is it about money that is this unique aspect that caused these things? You know, I, I'm just wondering how is it different from... Stress that's caused to a problematic career or problematic relationships. Why? Why is money so unique in that aspect?
1: It is unique, but it's not at the same time. So when you mention work, they're actually obviously related. So when we're worried about our profession or being able to uh, sort of you know maybe rise to the top of our professional field or um, some you know professionally related questions, they're at the root of it. I think is. Is our relationship with money, and as I mentioned in my book, financial psychology, uh, restoring financial wellness in a post COVID COVID economy. It's our relationship with earning, right? Our relationship with earning that you know some people think that you know if they earn enough or earning is the answer to all of their problems. And that delves into some research uh, done by Dr. Brad Clance. I'm sure most of most people know who he is and the money scripts that he came up with. And uh, so that's a money worship belief system that as long as I have more money and I can, I can earn, then all my problems will go away. And um, I kind of started saying after, you know, working with clients, I said, um, you can't out earn your ego sometimes <laughs> uh, just earning and earning and earning, but then spending equal amounts, right. Or even more so. That equation never, (laughs) never goes well, right? That's a, that's a, um, a road and a journey into, you know, deprivation and, uh, not being able to sustain the type of life that you're, you're building. So
0: are you using those manuscript assessments with your clients or would your sessions typically work very differently?
1: Well, and I love, so the, for me, the, and I talk about in the book, uh, you know, part three of the book really delves into the clinical treatment, the psychological treatment of uh, the clients that we work with. And my preference and, and my, my, um, my evidence-based practice that I usually try to implement with clients is starting with a narrative piece, starting with the money story, because it's so judgmental, it's so non-threatening. But in there is everything. In there is your life experience and your beliefs and how you feel about money. So based on that, that's the starting point. And when we start talking about scripts, you can actually read through your money story and pick out, literally pick out, you know, oh, this is a, you know, money worship script. This is a money status script. This is a um, money avoidance script which is probably actually the most common, right? And so it's actually makes, it actually makes it a lot easier to deal with the, the cognitive and behavioral and the, the belief system that uh, our clients bring into uh, sessions when you have the money story right in front of you. But um, to get back to the question you asked about, what is it about money that's so difficult? Actually, we have to kind of look at what happens in our brains And how, how does our brain process money? And what research has shown is that money, food, and sex, money, food, and sex are, uh, processed by the same part of the brain called the basal ganglia. And it's located in the emotional part of the brain. So what happens is that it's, it basically triggers the survival mechanism, the survival instinct, the same way that, you know, famine would, the same way that, you know, some sexual urges would. So um, that's why this this relationship with money runs so deep.
0: So would this be every time you have to make a financial decision, that part of your brain would be firing?
1: Well, it depends. Um, it depends on if you feel stressed or not. I think uh, the initial, the way I would answer it is, if you do fe- feel mm, like there's a, rot- a lot riding on this decision, right? Uh, <laughs> and one of the narratives that our minds tell us is, this is the, this is my one shot, right? Uh, I have to make, you know, do this perfectly or I'm never going to make it. So these sort of extreme ways of looking at, you know, this, this next action. Let's say I don't want to talk in hypothetics. How about, um, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic and everything that was going on financially and, and people actually sort of starting to, starting to play with investment and stock and being day traders right you know let's say you're in an industry that was eradicated by covid and now you're sitting in front of a computer screen trying to make sense of you know the stock market because your life really depends on it right so what happens is that uh, we get into what's called a a survival survival response or the fight flight and freeze response right Nothing, (laughs) nothing, uh, sort of brand new, but that's an instinctual response that we're either going to fight through this, you know, whatever is happening with us right now. Um, and a lot of those people who were in their fight mode were on LinkedIn and pivoting and making moves and all of that. And then some people really needed to take a step back and, uh were in sort of this flight mode. They really needed to retreat and take care of themselves and take care of their emotional well-being and psychological well-being before they were sort of ready and able to go out there in the world and start start uh pivoting as well. And sometimes it's the indecision of what to do. So that's okay as well.
0: So Alex, when these clients are going to see their financial planner, And the financial planner on noticing the stress, these problematic symptoms, what can that planner do to better prepare that client before they come to you to almost set the stage for the work that you would do with them?
1: Well, I think what we're talking about is uh, the human side of money, the emotional side of money. I think there's numerous terms that are used in the financial wellness space. Um, Also, I've heard it called, interior finance versus exterior finance right so how are we aligned internally and and what are we like how are we likely to respond and again this is what makes financial psychology is what makes uh personal finance personal that unfortunately or fortunately depending how you look at it um each one of us is unique all right so obviously economists uh um Look at patterns of behavior on sort of this macro scale, but when we take that that macro scale funnel and then funnel it down to the to the personal level, it may not be so. And this is partially what sort of again drove me to the work that I do is that economics is based on on uh, rational choice theory, right? <laughs> but at the personal level, as a psychologist with a clinical training in in clinical psychology, I know that uh rationality is not probably at the forefront of most of our behavior and thought process. We're unique. We're impulsive. We don't know why we chose the shirt that we did <laughs> this morning to wear. Uh Maybe it's because it was the cleanest or I just felt like wearing blue <laughs> today, right? We don't know. When we start talking about these things, I think the individualized process and this is what we were chatting with you and I prior to getting on the call is what kind of conversation can we have with our clients that is going to make them feel heard understood um, about what stress they're going through how can we help them feel heard about the goals that they want to achieve how do we make that conversation very meaningful and and personal to them because then if we can create that environment that uh, feeling of being heard and, and uh, secure and safe then they're much more likely to trust us to engage with us and to feel like yes this person has understands me exactly
0: can we talk about that yeah i mean in in that space like that that physical location you know you may be walking into the bank to see your financial planner like mm. are, are we are we setting ourselves up for success to have these type of conversations what what are, what are the things that you've seen uh, in financial planning practices or maybe even therapists offers that are, that are really not working that we should be avoiding that we should be should be going the other way to uh, to actually set the physical scene because I, I think this is sometimes something we're not talking about enough i would
1: focus on the relationship Right, the relationship is the most important piece. So, st- some data and statistics. This is strictly from the clinical psychology side. Is that um, the, the data is thirty percent of treatment, uh, or or depend uh, the modality that that the therapist chooses accounts for thirty percent of the success of the treatment. Let's say you chose narrative therapy or psychodynamic. Or, um, cognitive behavioral or maybe a combination. That's only 30% of the success of the treatment. You know what the other 70 is? The relationship, the rapport. If our clients don't trust us, don't feel comfortable with us, they're not, you know, all of the interventions and the techniques are a mood point at that point. And the same thing can be applied in really any walk of life. Whether you're doing you're doing sales, whether you're doing financial planning, it's the relationship. So, how many times have we heard about great salesmen? They'll never, you know, sit you down and start asking practical questions. They're going to ask you random questions just about you, just to understand
0: who you are. Is the same thing true for when your clients coming to see you? Like, where do you? Where do you start that conversation? I know you've spoken about the money story, but is there a piece before that to get them comfortable?
1: Yeah, so I mean, there's different sort of uh, ways of addressing it. One, it it just depends on what the client is bringing in. Sort of my last client uh, a couple of weeks ago was really, really feeling the pressure of all of the credit card debt and felt like they were in crisis. At the end of the first session, they were able to share with me that they, had passing thoughts of taking their own life, nothing serious, but that's the place where our mind goes. When we feel isolated, ashamed, all those feelings that we were just talking about earlier. And like, there is no way out that there's no solution. So part of the first meeting or first several meetings is to address the, the most important or important issues important to the client. Right? It's almost like, um, we, you know, coming from a medical model way back when, it's triaging, right? If you're, if you're hemorrhaging blood, we have to address that particular crisis. If you're hemorrhaging, hemorrhaging debt, (laughs) we have to address that first. Otherwise, the client will not hear us. Right? But if they're walking in without necessarily that level of intensity and, and, those type of you know issues and problems, then we can start somewhere else. Then we can start with, you know, a money story. But, you know, again, sort of falling back in my clinical background, it, you know, there's a cliche phrase that is always used is meeting the client where they're at. They're the expert and they will let you guide them. So you ask them, you know, where do they feel they are financially right now? What are they willing? You know, what have they tried? What haven't they tried? And, um, you know, I, <clears throat> I like to have fun. I like to have this, you know, build a relationship and have a conversational sort of lightness to, to the session, if, uh, if permitted. Um, and we're not talking about <laughs> parasuicidality. That's a big term. So I have two rules. Number one. If it works, do more of that. And if it doesn't work, change it and do something else. And (laughs) of course they're logging in and they're logging in with Dr. Alex Malkimian and they're, you know, waiting for this big, you know, either the financial plan or or a whole strategy. And we can talk about strategy, but I think the lightness of it really takes away the, the stress that they're walking in with. My my goal always is to provide hope for my clients, just like it happened with the client I just described. She walked away from that particular session saying that, you know, she felt hopeful that at least until the next week that we meet, um, she's willing to, you know, please think about and, and do some of the interventions that we discussed. And that's a big step from somebody who was sort of contemplating contemplating ending it all. Again, not in a serious way, but...
0: Yeah, you've offered that helping hand. How did you determine that it's not in a serious way? Because I'm asking that because I've often, not often, but I've been in a few conversations where suicidality has come up. And my first response is almost as a, well, we need to make sure that you're speaking to someone that can actually deal with this, which I feel is the right way. But as a clinician, what process do you follow or is, is that just experience-based where you can say, well, actually, I think this is probably not that serious, but it's something to work
1: with? Yeah, it's a little bit of both. Obviously, I'm clinically trained to deal with the utmost uh, difficult situations. So, you know, in financial therapy, it's actually a, sort of a delineation. The planners, even, even though the planners would sort of learn more of the human side of money, Um, They're not necessarily uh, equipped and trained to deal with somebody who's uh, struggling psychologically in a clinic, you know, in a clinical way, Uh, clinical depression, maybe even sort of bipolar disorder, something like that. Those uh, disorders can really have a huge impact on on how we deal with money and money impacting our our, our, uh, mental health as well. But. Um, having said all that and being clinically trained and in, in dealing with suicidality and things like that, you ask questions you know are how serious are you and you have to be somewhat direct about that you know um, and sometimes the clients actually appreciate that sort of direct type of um, questioning because nobody's asking them that question, and there's a reason why because most people feel afraid that they will not be able to handle. The fact that there's, you know, somebody else saying, <laughs> saying, Hey, I'm really thinking about taking my own life and they don't know what to do. And, uh, <laughs> two anxious people are not necessarily a good equation for success in that moment. But going back to that particular client, she mentioned herself that I just came to the end of my rope and those thoughts were just sort of flying around in my head, but I was, I know I was not serious. So that's how I knew. Right, and then the other part is, you know, really being transparent and vulnerable with with clients like that, and discussing how much you appreciate uh, the fact that they have enough trust in us, in me, to divulge that information because it because it is a big step, and part of you know therapeutic uh, techniques does involve, we call it, you know, validation and normalization that you're not alone. Um, you have, you have me and, and, uh, you know, basically I go into oftentimes, uh, you know, other examples of people who have been able to get out of uh, a similar situation that this particular client was going through. Um, you know, the other piece and sort of related to this is, is, um, I think it's the first time for a lot of uh, our clients where they realize the the major deep impact that money has that it's so deep that it can cause these type of thoughts. And unfortunately I also do, um, you know, sprinkle in some examples of that are not so fun. Um, I often talk about, uh, somebody named Adolf Merkel who was, and I talk about him in my book. (laughs) He was a German billionaire and in 2008 or nine, um he in one day he lost uh, a third of his uh, portfolio on the stock market in you know crash of uh, vw stocks he went from i think 12 billion to 8 or 9 billion or something like that so what happened for him is that he ended up walking in front of a train outside of munich and so when when i bring that example up to our, my clients um because a lot of times <clears throat> the question that they're asking themselves or, or the belief is that it's a money worship belief, right? If only I had more money, I mean, I would never even have these kind of thoughts. And here's a guy 9 billion, who went,
0: I would be fine.
1: Yeah. yeah. Okay. You lost, you know, you lost $4 billion. You went from 12 to nine. What's the big deal? But here's a case in point that it's not just about the money. It's not the money that's the issue. It's how we relate to the money that's the issue one of my favorite quotes about money and mental health. And so what happened is that, you know, I don't know uh, why Adolf, you know, did what he did and chose to end his life. I can only speculate. Uh, So in a way, barring maybe a conversation about real underlying depression, let's say that may have not been disclosed. um, He was 72 years old. And, you know, for somebody who, Uh, became so successful. Obviously, it involves, you know, a lot of business acumen and, and hard work, but also a pretty big ego, right? And so maybe it's the fact that at 72 years old, he did not see that there's enough sort of time left for him to recoup that money. And that's my particular perspective, that somehow his ego convinced convinced him that um you know this is you know so bad and this is so unrepairable that the, the only way to save face is to do what he did
0: Alex if we take that example and we say it might be a client with limited time and maybe there's a few years you don't have the opportunity to go back and rebuild your wealth but they're getting to a point where they're physically running out of money. They're not having enough money to cover their their expenses. Where do you start unpacking and where do you start creating that, that hope to almost say, hey, things are going to be better or get you to the realization when you might be struggling or maybe you're a financial planner that's struggling to see any signs of hope? Great
1: question. So I think what we can talk about is – the, narr- the narratives that we discussed earlier, which is, you know, the, the financial literacy and the language of money, right? And uh, I think you and I connected on LinkedIn, and you, I think you've seen some of my social media posts. And, uh, some, you know, one of them is the four languages of money, right? So, we have the practical, the emotional, the cultural, and then the spiritual. Um, those are the lenses through, or the languages, you can say right, through which I choose to work with my clients and how they look at money. But ultimately, what we can sort of boil it down to is the practical and the emotional. And so a lot of times with financial advisors, they they focus on the practical, right? And again, go back to treating it like a math equation. And there is absolutely so much validity and um, so much solution in that, I'm not saying that do not address the practical piece. But I almost feel like I always bring this up as it's a two-pronged approach. We have to address the practical as well as the emotional. And so the thing I came up with is if you're worried about the financial part of financial stress, you're missing the point, right? So yes, we can. there's all kinds of practical strategies in dealing with financial stress. But there's also an equal amount of psychological strategies, therapeutic strategies to deal with the stress. This is why somebody, uh, this is why the difference between somebody who's living in poverty, who has real uh, reasons to be financially stressed, is experiencing the same <laughs> symptoms, right? The same sort of mindset that somebody who is earning who's middle class, but they are experiencing the mental side, the finan- the stress part of financial stress. And it's almost like if you actually sit there across from them and you listen to how they're describing uh, their life, uh, sometimes they're worse off <laughs> mentally and mental health-wise than somebody who's living in poverty, right? Wow, so so that, then the, dealing, with financial stress, yeah, dealing with financial stress on both fronts, the practical and the emotional is absolutely crucial. So, how do we do that? Uh, you know, I, I can talk a, a bit about some practical and emotional strategies. So, I think about 70% of our clients are money uh, avoidance, <laughs> money avoiders, right? From, from that, the money script of financial avoidance. And they oftentimes engage in Retail therapy of all of the sort of financial behaviors that uh, we oftentimes discuss as financial enabling, financial hoarding. Well, retail therapy and shopaholism is the predominant behavior that most people engage in, right? It's sort of the guest star of that list. Yeah. So uh, if we take that particular client, for example, they have a hard time saying no to themselves they're very impulsive and so sometimes it's what we call psychoeducation so we do go into the the neurology of what happens in their brain and we talk about you know food money and sex like we just did and then the second piece that we discuss is something called a amygdala hijack the amygdala hijack is a fancy word for the emotional part of the brain overtaking hijacking the logical part of the and it actually happens during the fight or flight response. Yeah. So this is how you promise yourself a hundred times that you're not going to buy <laughs> that um, TV or that purse or whatever is in your uh, Amazon account, the the little cart. Right. And then the next thing you know is, oh, you ended up clicking buy somehow, some way. Right. And then the next thing you know is it does create this this shame cycle. And in order to deal with that shame cycle, you engage in coping strategies. And if your coping strategy is to shop, it's basically a vicious cycle, right? That's what I'm describing. But the practical tools um, for somebody like a shopaholic would be uh, creating a 48-hour rule. Where you just leave the item that you bought in the shopping cart, this is a modern day twenty two twenty twenty two version of window shopping for those of us who are old enough to remember window shopping yeah forty eight hours you don't touch it. I mean, you put it in that cart and i mean see Amazon is smart, they'll send you a reminder email, right? <laughs> don't you want this you know thing the the bag or the new phone or whatever it is that you're buying? So that's one 48 hour rule. Second, unlinking your cards from as many accounts as you can so that when you log into Amazon, it's not so easy to click buy. It's not so easy to click buy on, you know, another Starbucks frappuccino that's now here in LA. I think it's, I don't know, $6, something like that, right? On average. Then all of a sudden it's like, okay, you have to go get your card. You have to sit in front of the computer. You have to type in the number and the expiration date and the CV code and all of that. So putting some barriers, right? Automation, something that financial planners uh, have used quite often and, you know, for a long time. Pay yourself first and automation are sort of, you know, com- there's a combination there if you don't see the money <laughs> in your account and let's say you know you have four or five accounts so you get the main account <clears throat> that you get paid in and and it's automatically withdrawn same day uh, when you receive your your check and then you only use your spending account you know for shopping and and the rest so you don't you know see that money so those are let's say some of the practical ways uh, we can, you know, address somebody who has a shopping, uh, addiction, shopping issue. Actually, one more I'll mention is, uh, mandatory splurging. The reason why it's important. And isn't it? A, I came up with that because it's a, it's a fun name, fun sort of label. And clients do that, you know, <laughs> tilting of the head and they're like, Oh yeah, that's, that sounds great. So mandatory splurging. It's your cheat day for money. Exactly. You know, there's so many parallels between food, sex, and money. So, a lot of the things that we do with money is, is uh, similar to how we deal with food. Absolutely. And so, it's a way to to stave off the negative emotion of deprivation. Deprivation is such a powerful emotion or regret or resentment, those three, right? And then ultimately, underneath all of that is shame, shame that I can't just, you know, uh, be good with money, I'm damaged goods. So by adding that line item into our budget or spending plan, whatever term <laughs> your planners use, it basically reverses that mindset. And all of a sudden, it's you're not holding on for dear life trying to be good and or trying to be perfect at you know your spending plan for the next six months and what happens at the end of that six months is is that big (laughs) sigh of relief oh i made it and the next thing you know is your unconscious mind goes okay time to spend time to make up for all that lost time right so With mandatory splurging is, you know, obviously, uh, there's a very personal conversation about if your monthly earning is $1,000, then allocate $50 a month to mandatory splurging. You can take that money and donate it somewhere. You can take that money and, I don't know, rip it up. Like literally, you can do anything you want with it, right? If you earn $10,000 a month, (laughs) you can take, you know, 500 bucks. And actually, it's a great technique for, uh, when we work with couples, right? Because that way, uh, the couple makes this rule that we are doing mandatory splurging and I don't get to ask you what you spent your money on. And you don't get to ask me what I spent my money on. And we both agree on the amount. Each, each partner gets to spend 500 bucks. If it's a purchase above 500, then we have to kind of check in with each other and see um, you know if as a family as a couple as a unit we want to you know make that purchase or not
0: Alex, it's amazing how many of this or how much of this is actually just setting the foundation and the ground rules saying now we have a framework now we have something to work with oh here you can splurge this is what you need to do and I don't think we we're obviously we're not born with that, so it doesn't come automatically. you have a passion for financial education so. You know, is this a big part of that financial education to say, hey, here's the framework. This is how to hack your brain, essentially, when it comes to finance. Yeah,
1: I agree with that. And actually, I would sort of add that I'm not solely passionate about financial education. Because education alone, knowing what to do, does not necessarily equal results. And this is exactly the conversation that we oftentimes have In the food and diet industry, right? We all know what to do as far as, you know, consuming calories and working out, but, and the same thing with money, right? But somehow we know the theory, but somehow not all of us are, you know, super thin and wealthy walking around living our best life. Yeah. So just the knowledge alone, and I'm not trying to sort of downplay the knowledge Knowledge is very important, but, um, it's financial literacy and financial knowledge plus financial psychology. Then that together equals financial wellness.
0: We had Dr. Mora Summers on a previous episode talking about the compliance aspect, you know, getting people to actually take your advice and start implementing it. And what I'm hearing you saying is also, you know, you need to have the knowledge. You need to have a partner to keep you accountable and you know, help you but also you'll have these mental hurdles that you need to work through or get through and you've shared so much of the language that we can use when we start having these discussions with our clients. I want to talk a little bit about the actual communication method because I find that a lot of clients really struggle to speak to their spouses about money. Are there any processes or discussions that you would have to simplify that you've mentioned a little bit now saying hey let's have a, a designated spending amount what other communication preferences or, or tactics would there be that you can share with us
1: sure i think where we sort of left off is we talked about the practical piece but we didn't talk about the psychological piece right and the communication is a huge part of that The communication and that we can kind of go back to the narrative of of building a relationship. And when we when clients can can feel like they can relate to what you're saying, you automatically get that buy in. Right. (laughs) So where I would start this conversation and and (laughs) uh, I oftentimes kind of start here with clients as well as talking about the financial inner critic. And it's sort of a, a a big taboo, but somehow every time I've mentioned that term, financial inner critic or just inner critic, I don't have to sit there and have long explanations for what that term means. Everybody just, just like you did, they just sit there and nod and they know exactly what I'm referring to. It's that it's actually our ego masked in this, you know, expert, financial expert, <laughs> uh, Uh, sheep and wolves clothing kind of a thing right and all of a sudden it's 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 the part of us that demands perfection but it's ruthless and it's mean and it's extremely critical and judgmental right and if it's you know if we didn't achieve everything from the first try perfectly then why do it at all so having that conversation communicating that helps them take that Deep breath, that deep exhale, and go, Oh, okay, this person, Dr. Alex, know exactly what I'm going through he I can relate to what he's saying yeah this this uh inner you know inner critic, financial inner critic has been berating me about you know not making more money on the stock market when everybody seemed to be uh when when the stock market was going up. I should have bought that Amazon, I should have bought that Tesla right it's like I will never let this, you know, uh, let myself live this down. Just saying that out loud takes the power out of those words. Being able to communicate that to somebody else instead of walking around with all of the, all of that, that stress inside of us. And from there, we can really start the conversation about financial stress and how to deal with it. I really feel passionately that financial stress is an epidemic not only in our country but globally that nobody is really talking about um just a few stats to throw at you and, and your audience um at least in the states uh, both the financial uh, side and the psychological side both agree uh that based on their surveys uh people 60 to 80 percent of people are consumed by financial stress so what are these numbers? What story do these numbers tell us? That's another framework that I use. What's What story do these numbers tell us? Well, the story is that people are struggling. And if we actually equate that number to, you know, the 60 to 80% to other chronic conditions, because financial stress is a chronic condition, we have to deal with money on a daily basis almost. We cannot live a, you know, productive, meaningful life, you know, on the grid <laughs> uh without dealing with money. So what that means is oh sorry. So what happens is if we compare financial stress as a chronic condition to other chronic conditions, it's almost double. Heart disease, um diabetes, a few others that I you know are, that are not coming to my mind right now, but it's double. And even compared to COVID, which was at sixty percent, I'm not trying to say that financial stress is as devastating as covid was but covid was 60 percent, and of course we had you know uh, <laughs> these countdowns on the news and there was a whole conversation of course i understand that but also we need to address the financial stress piece and so um my framework for dealing with financial stress it comes from um somebody uh, named susan david who's a, a professor of psychology at harvard and she came up with this idea of uh, emotional agility. And emotional agility, as she describes it, is a skill set to be able to feel our emotions in the moment and being able to adjust in the moment uh, and get through that emotion right here, right now. Because if we don't do it in the here and now, it gets repressed. It gets stuffed down somewhere in there and has a weird way of coming out. So we don't want that. And so when we start talking about financial stress to our clients, they relate. oh, yeah, I'm, I'm financially stressed. I'm stressed about this. I'm stressed about that. And what we've come to learn is that financial stress is actually a label, this huge label that we just throw at, you know, everything that we experience. Like you just brought up a few uh, minutes ago when we were talking about profession, Right profession and money and well-being of our family and, and be feeling and being successful, like it's all tied in together, right? So all of that is this snowball of financial stress and this huge label of financial stress. And so what Susan David talks about is not only do we have to remain emotionally agile, but there's something called emotional granularity. Fancy word for breaking down a label into smaller parts into smaller granules and being able to, you know, label what we're feeling right now. So, can we do a little, can I ask you a question and turn, turn the it a little bit? Yeah. All right. So, if I would ask you, what what are the kind of two or three most common things that you feel concerned or maybe financially stressed about in your life? Go oh, be?
0: Is specific items, you know, the things that might sure. be coming up. What comes up to you? Yeah. Yeah, I guess paying for my daughter's education when she has to go to university. At some point, Mm -hmm. uh, increasing interest rates. So paying a mortgage, Mm -hmm. uh, living expenses, things are getting more expensive. Uh, Those would be the top three.
1: And so what are the, now, so that's the label of financial stress. What emotion are you feeling when you're
0: thinking about your daughter, let's say? Uncertainty, I guess a little bit, a little bit of anxiety. Yeah. Uncertainty is probably unsure. Okay.
1: What about um, when you think about, you know, volatility of the market and inflation, interest rates?
0: Yeah. um, How long will this last? Mm. Um, How big of an impact will it be? What impact will it have on our business? What impact will it have on my personal finances? Right.
1: So even in that example, what you've described, there's two different emotions that are underlying those experiences. Sounds like there's not a lot we can do about you know the state of the world and inflation, right? So that's something that we oftentimes in recent times address with our client. Uh how financial stress is a is a is a is a call to action. Sometimes we worry about random things that we shouldn't be worried about. But sometimes there is a reason to be worried. There is a reason to look at certain things. And so, um, in the, in the example you described regarding inflation, yes, that is a viable concern, right? But again, at the same time, there's not a lot we can do about that. So incessantly thinking about that will not necessarily, you know, be very productive. And we go back to the idea of internal versus external locus of control. If you can't do anything about it, why drives you, drive yourself crazy? Right. Can you leave that alone? That thought. Can you tell your inner critic to be quiet? <laughs> and you know, a lot of our clients have a harder time doing that. There's an intervention that we use, it's kind of funny as well. It's called the worry session. So the worry session is something like, Okay, Lewis, you're gonna wake up at six AM and then I want you to set your timer for thirty minutes from seven thirty to eight o'clock. And that's the time you can worry till your heart's content. After that, the rest of the day, you've, you've done your worry for the day. So your quota has, met, has been met um, and, and try not to worry. Obviously there's also um, discussions of mindfulness and, and really taking, taking time to uh, implement mindful techniques to help yourself not necessarily stress and worry but this is something that's called a paradoxical intervention <laughs> which um can be can feel or we can think of as um unnatural almost right and it has a little bit of this humor to it but it can be helpful it can be helpful uh <laughs> what i've seen from clients is after a week of doing something like this all of a sudden they're not so keen on you know worrying for the rest of the day because they have oh, i don't I don't want to set the timer for 30 minutes or twenty minutes, or you know, lessening that time. So that's another intervention that, that we've utilized with with clients. So,
0: so instead of it just being sprinkled through your day, you actually have a designated time and say, okay, this is now. Right. Now, this is when I'm going to do it. I'm scheduling that in.
1: Absolutely. And so, uh, what happens is that we want to be mindful of how we spend our, our day. Um, another narrative that we uh, that I usually use with clients is. Uh, if we take that sixty percent that we discussed of financial stress, what if we take that and apply it to the day uh the day to day life of any average person and what happens is uh obviously out of twenty four hours we sleep about eight hours a day, so that leaves us sixteen hours and and sixty percent of sixteen is about twelve hours that means twelve hours a day we spend maybe not actively being financially stressed but it's in the back of our mind it's in our unconscious there's something running in the back there that does not let us experience life for what it is and just feel the beauty of the current moment right we're still kind of uh the antennas are the financial stress antennas are up for financially stressed folks we know that people uh, people who are financially stressed don't sleep eight hours right you wake up you're worried so let's say it's Six hours of sleep. That means it's almost thirteen hours of you know being concerned with money. So that's the framework that i that you know we we work from as well with our clients and and being able to uh, impart that framework really sort of is eye opening to our clients. And where we sort of take it to is again that emotional granularity. And instead of looking at the financial stress label we look deeper and say okay if you are worried about the economy and you have fear that something is uh that you know everything is going to go to uh, <laughs> a bad place um that means that you have we have to uh work with that fear but the example that you gave about your daughter it may be that you're feeling a little bit of guilt and shame and so the practical steps to deal with that guilt and shame is completely different, right? than dealing with the fear and anxiety of the volatility of the market. In order to help yourself deal with the shame and guilt of uh, providing for your daughter, then the practical steps you would take would be what earning more money or prioritizing saving out of your earnings towards uh, your daughter's education. And shifting your spending plan in a way that would prioritize them, so all of a sudden, we give the power of choice back to our client. We're not no longer stuck in that emotional space of financial stress, and I can't do anything about it i I, I don't know how to think about it. I'm just
0: stuck we've printed that wheel of emotions at our office, yeah, and I've found mm-hmm. it so useful to help identify okay you're angry and then you can go one step out okay well like what type of Mm -hmm. anger and then it ends up the emotion with the the label of that emotion being very different from what you initially thought is that something practical that you would do with your clients as well absolutely
1: and um sort of another framework that i uh, i would bring into this conversation is the one of emotional budgeting that emotional budgeting and if we think of uh, money as a currency, an emotional currency, then we can think of certain emotions being much more expensive or taxing on our mind and our body. Like shame is the, one of the most expensive ones. Regret or resentment, deprivation, all of those are extremely expensive on, on the mind and body. And so when the whole process of labeling emotions, and helping to sort of almost allocate a certain currency amount to a particular negative emotion. And I don't want to uh mislead you and your audience that it's only about negative emotions. Positive emotions can be just as blinding um and unhealthy as negative emotions. When we're blinded by love and we're spending <laughs> money we don't have on impressing a, a partner that, are, that we want to court... <laughs> that's that's no that's no good. Uh, if we fall in love with the idea of buying this one amazing stock, I mean I know there's no way this thing can go down, right? And that sort of blind faith and factuation with that idea comes from this <laughs> almost euphoric feeling like oh this is this is gonna be it. <laughs> right? So the the point is that our emotions are data. And we take them into account when we make our decisions, but they're not leading our decision-making process. They're motivating us, but when we come to talk about decision-making from an emotional budget standpoint, we want to get to a place of equanimity and emotional neutrality so that we're not implementing an amygdala hijack. We're not emotionally overwhelming our logical uh, brain. But we're leading with our logical brain and also checking in with our emotions and going, okay, yes, I feel motivated by love to provide for my family. Now, what does that look like practically? And so together, um, we we use the concept of a wise mind as the combination of both the logical and, and the fact I mean the logical and the emotional, my bad. So
0: I love that that idea of the wise mind. And Dr. Alex says we Coming to a close, uh, this, uh, this wealth of knowledge and this wonderful structure that, that you've put, I want to urge people to pick up your book. Um, it's available on Amazon and we'll add a link to the show notes. It's, it's a wealth of knowledge and structures and statistics that you can share with your clients, the people that you do work with. If people want to reach out to you, uh, what's the best place to get hold of you? So my
1: website is financialpsychologycenter.com, as well as I'm uh, on most social media from uh, LinkedIn to Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Financial Psychology Center.
0: Brilliant. Thank you so much for being here. It has been, it's lived up to the expectation and um, it's been extremely valuable. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Louis. I appreciate you.